not how book festivals work. This is how book festivals work. Welcome to a very special event at Aberdeen's second Granite Noir Festival. My name's Fiona Stalker. I'm a journalist at BBC Scotland here in Aberdeen. It is my absolute pleasure to be introducing our dream team to you this afternoon. I'm a massive crime writing fan. I am a huge fan of Anne Cleves and I've had the joy of having a chat with her before. Um, Anne's written over 30 novels which have been translated into 20 languages and has scooped some of the world's most acclaimed literary prizes. And she's just been presented with one upstairs, which we'll tell you a bit about later. Um, the TV adaptions of both Vera and Shetland continue to pull in massive viewing figures. And we're going to find out a wee bit this afternoon about Anne's journey to becoming an international best-selling author. We're going to have a chat about her eighth Vera outing, The Seagull, um, and uh, as a journalist of many years in Aberdeen, I've covered my fair share of crime stories. And the man sitting next to Anne, Dr. James Grieve, is an absolute legend. <laughs> a senior forensic pathologist, a living legend, in the north of Scotland. <laughs> For over a quarter of a century, Dr. Grieve has given expert witness evidence at some of Scotland's most notorious murder cases. I've seen him through glass, actually and at fatal accident inquiries, but investigating unexplained deaths. He's also the go-to forensic expert for some of Scotland's most loved crime writers, including Anne, and James appears as himself in Anne's Shetland novels. And together, this delightful duo, who deal in both real and fictional crime, will share some of their wisdom and experience with us this afternoon. Do the dead really give up their secrets at the post-mortem? Both my guests have decades of experience in the crime department. We'll discuss what changes they've seen over the years. Before I introduce Anne and James, let me tell you what to expect. We're going to have a chat. And then the thing that I like most about these events is your chance to ask these guys questions, anything that you want to ask. And then Anne will be signing books over in the corner and then you can emerge into the sunlight knowing exactly how to commit the perfect murder. <laughs> so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome warmly Anne and James. Lots to talk about this afternoon. And first of all, though, um, you wrote the first Vera novel, taking us back a bit, The Crow Trap. Um, did you know at that point that Vera would be going on this huge long journey? Or no, it was going to be a standalone psychological novel because my publisher said, no, no, people, <coughs> this was 99, I think it was published, mm. um, people aren't interested in reading detective series anymore. <laughs> They're completely out of date. They're artificial. I'm not commissioning anymore, so we need you to write a standalone novel. And those of you who've read The Crow Trap, the first book, realise that Vera doesn't actually turn up till about halfway through the book. And so it was going to be about three women who were doing an environmental survey up in the Northumberland National Park. And one of them would die because I wasn't going to give up murder. No, no, no. <laughs> I might be giving up the series, but I wasn't going to give up murder. And then I got really stuck and I didn't know what I was going to do with the book because I never plot in advance. And so I think it was Raymond Chandler who said, if you're stuck with a story, have a guy burst through a door with a gun. <laughs> I don't really do guns either. <laughs> Take too much 
research. But I thought I'd, I'd practice this trick and I'd have a door burst open and I'd see who came through. And in one of those magic moments that sometimes happen when you're writing, who burst in was, was Vera Stanhope. And I had her name and I describe her even then as looking more like a bad lady than a detective. <laughs> And that's where she came from. But no, it was just going to be a one-off book. And she wasn't supposed to be in it anyway. Oh. And, and why do you think, because there is such massive affection for the character of Vera, why, why do you think that is? I, it was quite interesting to unpick where she might have come from. And I was born in the mid-50s, so not that long after the war. And in the small town where I lived, there were a number of ferocious spinsters who'd either lost sweethearts during the war or who'd been allowed to take on roles and responsibilities that they wouldn't otherwise have been allowed. And quite sensibly, I think, decided they would rather be single and be 1950s housewives. <laughs> and they were matrons, hospital matrons, or they taught me Sunday school, or they were school teachers. And I think there's something about a strong middle-aged woman not caring at all what other people think of her or what she looks like that is appealing to us of a certain age. <laughs> yeah, I wish I had her balls, but, you know. <laughs> 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 we talk a wee bit more about Vera and, of course, about Shetland and some of Anne's other writing, but I'm going to bring um, Dr James Grieven at this point. How on earth did you two start your collaboration? How did, that, how did that kick off, James? You can tell the story. I wonder who's in the audience before I tell it all. Um, <laughs> some years ago, Stuart McBride, of course, the local author, and the people from that which was called the Macaulay Institute, but now the James Hutton Institute in Aberdeen, had a grant to, uh, from the Scottish executive in order that they could bring the science and technology subjects to the public and to youngsters. And they struck on this brilliant idea, which was called Murder, Mysteries and Microscopes, of having a crime author, and it was usually Stuart, uh, who would read his pieces, and then three of us who were actually involved in the activity were there to criticise. Now, let me tell you, it's very... Ritual humiliation very, in public. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's very, very difficult to find anything to criticise, because they do fantastic research, these people, uh, and so we can't criticise them. Stuart was the chair of, um, or convener of the programme committee of the International Crime Writing Festival at Harrogate one of these years we were doing that. And he wanted us to do it uh, for Harrogate, but he didn't want to read his books. So he put <laughs> Anne fear Cleves. Of humiliation. Uh, so he put Anne Cleves up for, uh, for that particular honour. And uh, so it was arranged, we'd all go to Harrogate, and we met in bed. For those of you who know Harrogate, bed is a restaurant, B-E-D, -E I don't know what it stands for, but they certainly use the whole thing in their promotion, come and meet in bed, so I met Anne Cleves in bed. And, and were there others there in bed with you, or just the two? James's wife. Yeah, <laughs> she, she, she goes everywhere with me, you know, it's very exciting. Um, That's fine. So, so we, we met there, and we, we did, uh, Anne read some of her, her material, and in particular some stuff from Shetland, I was uh, looking for something to criticise. And as I say, it's almost impossible. But there was just a little piece in there that rather suggested that the pathologist in Aberdeen who dealt with the homicides from Shetland was overpaid. That's how I took it. <laughs> and I felt that there were 
650 or 700 people who needed to know that that was not factually accurate. And so, and so I, I chose that particular <laughs> sentence. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and of course, James, you are in Shetland. You're ca you are in Shetland. Yeah. And how are you described again? Ah, uh, yes. Well, I mean, you know, you know you, you, how is you described on? <laughs> well, I needed to get my own back up. <laughs> so every time James appears in the books, he is described as a small man. <laughs> I mean, it seems entirely unfair, doesn't it? No, I am standing up before any of you said. <laughs> I do mention the highly polished shoes as well. There you go, a lot. Highly polished. <laughs> so, I mean, question to both of you, but Anne, first of all, why is it for you so important to get the forensics right? I think it's important not to get it too wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that we, we want to make it clear to readers that it isn't like it is on CSI. You know, mm -hmm. things, results don't come back immediately ends can't be tied up absolutely. Mm. Because in the States, certainly, I, and I don't know about here, perhaps James would be able to tell us, but there's something called the CSI effect, where juries are refusing to convict if the evidence they get isn't like it is on the TV. <laughs> and I think that's really dangerous. So I don't strive to get every bit right, because I, I suspect that, that a real police investigation is full of quite tedious and meticulous mm. hard work, and that wouldn't work for a story. But I don't want to get it too wrong. So in The Seagull, there's a scene where, where, where bones are found in a, in a culvert near St Mary's Island. And I did have a very long phone call to James talking about bones. I did wonder if anybody was eavesdropping. Yes, you have to know all my telephones are, are all tapped, you know, the police station, the Forrester Hill. <laughs> But he was remarkably generous with his time and spent a lot of time explaining what you could learn, what a pathologist could learn from a pile of old bones. But from your point of view, James, you, you, you advise, obviously, Anne, you advise people like Lynn Anderson as well, he's well-known and brilliant Scottish crime writer. Why is that important to you, though? Well, well, Anne has touched on this, really. It's the educational issue. Mm. Um, we, we really get our education through entertainment, don't we? We're never great at getting education when we were at school and it was just delivered to us. It's, it's a terribly important issue, entertainment. I believe it says something about that in the BBC Charter, doesn't it? Indeed it does. Yes, yeah, so, so there's entertainment's critical. Read it. And, yeah, and, and so, so it's, about, uh, it's about educating through the pages of these books. Anne's right, the CSI effect is a very worrying effect for us. People watch CSI on the television and it is so well produced that, of course, people believe it's accurate. And they're very, very disappointed when I cannot actually tell you exact time of death, exact <laughs> mechanism of death, identification and so on from a tiny fragment of fingernail underneath an interesting microscope. Well, that's yet to be invented. So we rely on educational activity because, as Anne says, that's what's going to confront real people. They're going to find themselves on a jury I don't want the jury to believe that it's all a fiction because that's much too difficult. And the other issue, of course, uh, is, as, as I uh, keep on saying, um, people make jokes all the time about a pathologist and how his patients are dead. Well, I have to get this over very quickly. My patients are not dead. My patients are absolutely alive. The, the, the cause of the hurt for living people is the sudden and unexpected death of their relative. 
And I'm doing what I do for the living, not for the dead. Therefore, I have to have contact with living people. And it's far better that they have a more practical and accurate view of what we do, of what we are, and the way that we do it, than have some sort of fiction which probably only spurs their imaginations. Mm. And that makes it so much, difficult, so much more difficult. So really what we're saying here is it's an educational opportunity. And I think for 10 minutes spent speaking to, to Anne or a crime author, I mean, she, she goes on about all this sort of bones and so on. I don't even remember what was said. And probably, <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably I wouldn't recognise it now. Yeah, I'll read, read, it and, read it and learn. So, um, yes, but I'm not, nonetheless, I'm not going to accept uh, candidates for the FRC PATH exam in forensic pathology just telling me that their text references are all by crime authors. Uh, but you've also, I think that's a very important uh, point you make about, you know, it's for, it's for the living, it's, it's patience. And you express your distaste before about the focus that we have on sometimes celebrity deaths and how, how big yeah, they yes. become compared to a death. Yes. Well, it's the same, it's the same issue, isn't it? You, you know, our, our own personal lives are very personal and our own personal losses are personal losses. And it doesn't matter uh, who you are or how mighty you are or how important, how wealthy or whatever. The loss of your own father, mother, son, daughter, sister, brother, husband, wife. That's a very personal thing to that individual. And it will be the same when Sir Bob Geldof loses his daughter mm. uh, to drugs. It'll be exactly the same as when the scourge of drugs hits the, the population of the northeast of Scotland. Mm. Uh, I think last year we had 85 drugs deaths here. And for every one of these families, that loss surely is every bit as acute Indeed, dare I say, maybe even more so, because they don't have mm. the celebrity backup and so on. They just have to put up with the loss themselves. Mm. So I'm very, very conscious of that, and I always have been very conscious of that. Uh, you know, as I say, my patients are not dead; they're very, very much alive. And, and I think that's something hurt. that I I got from yeah. James, and I think I actually quote that in in one of the the books. And I think that's one thing that fiction can do. We mm. can look at the aftermath of the murder. I'm not so interested in the, the whodunit aspect, though it, it's great. You know, if you, I love it as a reader if you get the mm. cheap thrill of the surprise ending. But what I'm really interested in is that, mm. is the effect of, of a sudden death on a family or on relatives and friends and, and being able to explore those things. We, I mean, we're, we're here as part of a, a crime writing festival and in, it's been a phenomenal weekend. It's the second Granite Noir one, but there are huge crime writing events now popping up everywhere. There's Bloody Scotland, of course, mm. which is hugely popular now. There's Edinburgh Book Festival. Why do you think that we are so fascinated by crime writing? Because in my mind, it, it has got, it's becoming bigger and bigger. Well, why do you think that is? I think partly it's because there are some phenomenally good young writers coming up. We talked about the golden age of crime fiction being between the wars, the mm, 1930s. Yeah, yeah. But I think we, we're in a new golden age, and I think there is a new, new readership who are reading people like, I mean, Emma Flint, Mick Heron, um, Abia Mukherjee, who's a Glaswegian mm. who writes um, amazingly. And I think it's the quality of the writing. And I think in the past, maybe they wouldn't have written crime fiction because people were quite snobby about crime fiction. Mm. 
but now I think I think partly as well because um, because of the influx of translated crime writing mm. from Europe and Scandinavia, someone like Fred Vargas, whose books are his French, whose books are maybe have a bit of magic realism in them, they would be considered literary fiction actually. And I think some of these new writers, Emma Flint's Little Deaths, is a brilliant novel. It's not just a brilliant crime novel, mm. it's a brilliant novel. And I think we can be crime writers and proud now. And in the past, maybe we, we were a bit apologetic about what we wrote. And you're party animals, according to Val McDermott. Are you one of the party animals? I like a few drinks at the end of the festival. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does seem a very, um, you know, it's, it's almost like a family, I mean, the way you're describing it. We get on very well yeah. and we're very happy to support each other. And I think... And you talk about each other's work a lot, yeah. which I think is fantastic. And new writers so. and you champion new crime writers. I think so. And I think that's why... And because we, we like meeting readers as well. And we're, I, I love doing library events. I love going out and meeting readers. I love doing festivals. And I think uh, it's said that the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival is the only literature, literary festival where the, the green room is empty because all the writers are <laughs> mixing it in the bar with the readers. That's and you, you don't get that at the, at the, the more standard literary festivals yeah. where the writers are whisked after their, <laughs> their yurt if they're in Edinburgh and you're kept quite separate from the readers. And, yeah. and it's certainly not like that at the crime festival. And for you, Jim, I mean, is it a busman's holiday? Do you read crime novels? Or, and can you read them without going, ah, mm -mm, that's not happening? This is embarrassing, isn't it? Now I have to admit right, that I Nicola can't reads read. Them. Nicola reads them. Nicola, my wife reads them and tells me. Um, no, I, I, um, of course I read Diane Cleve's work and I, I have to read what I'm supposed to think uh, from some of the other. No, I, I, um, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a great reader because I work all day and I read all the stuff that mm. happens then, and I go home and fall asleep in front of the television, and I'm shoveled quietly into my bed. <laughs> and uh, so, but uh, when on holiday, no, I'm very happy to read crime uh, fiction. And as I say, I reiterate, there isn't much wrong in it. So I don't go through it uh, looking, uh, looking for the flaws. Um, yeah. I read it for the same reason everybody else reads it, which is for some entertainment. Mm. And Yes, you learn all sorts of interesting things there. I also read it to find little pieces that I can talk about, you know, whether I'm in bed or not. Um, and certainly Which in front of large audiences. I've forgotten <laughs> by now, you know. Yeah. Um, for the uh, for, for, for you know, talks uh, to crime writing festivals and the right and the like, it's it's fantastic how much you can get out of crime authors. That is really beautiful material and so beautifully articulated that you can take as a start mm. to describe what actually the mundanity of real life actually is. So you have done a huge amount of, of teaching in your career as well, um, you know, the next generation of pathologists. Have you seen a change in, in students' attitude? Do, do they see it as a slightly more glitzy career because of their profile now, do you think? And is that, is that a problem? Uh, large numbers of medical students um, do see probably a lot more on the television than mm, necessarily yeah. reading books. They have to mature into reading the books, I think. But they, uh, <laughs> they see lots of, lots of stuff on the television, and it clearly, uh, it clearly influences them. Now, I have absolutely no problem with that at all. Mm -hmm. If 
seeing something and having an aspiration, wanting to be that forensic scientist or the forensic pathologist, or, dare I say, even the author, mm. that's good because it gives them that stimulus to perhaps work a little bit harder for a year, get these hires, mm. uh, A-levels and so on, and aspire to making the best of themselves, going to medical school, going to law school, uh, doing literary studies, whatever it is mm. that they are going to do. That's brilliant. Of course, we could not accommodate all of the third and fourth year school pupils who want to be forensic scientists. It's actually, it's a, it's a very small specialty forensic pathology. Forensic science is highly competitive. But the great thing is they come to medical school because they've got the five hires, because they wanted uh, to be a forensic pathologist. And by great good fortune, about day six, they realize that there's a whole other world out there that they want to do. And so we capture the people who want to be the children's doctors and the obstetricians and the orthopedic surgeons and so on. So it's, if it's a way of bringing them in, and I come back to, to how we met with uh, the Scottish Executive Outreach Grant uh, to try and introduce the science and technology and engineering and mathematics subjects to children. The great thing about that particular issue was that we were introducing some children to STEM subjects, but we were introducing others to literary mm. issues. Mm. So in fact, it was capturing both sides that particular uh, educational adventure. Yeah, uh, and that, that is good, I think. We had a great response. We did schools in, in um, we did a school in Orkney and in Shetland, didn't we? We went up and did the Northern Isles tour mm -hmm. with, with other scientists, so that was good fun. Mm -hmm. in, in terms of um, the writing process, Anne, I, I find it fascinating how authors have different processes. So Lynn Anderson um, was saying, um, that she tends to just start writing and doesn't know where the journey's going to go and she just she goes on a journey. Um, Val McDermott and Peter May much more structured so they know the beginning, where's the middle and exactly where the end is. Where does your style fit? Yeah, I'm a starter and don't know where I'm going, writer. <laughs> I always say I write like a reader, so I write the mm. first scene and then I need to know what's going to happen next, so I have to write the next chapter mm. and write the next chapter. I'm just starting writing something completely new now. And I am feeling that I do need to know a bit more. Mm. I think with the, the Shetland and the and Vera, I know the characters so well mm. that I don't need to plan in advance because I know the sort of people they are and where they're likely to go and how they're likely to react to situations. Mm. Um, but with this, this new novel, I'm having to And this think, is not crime? Not crime? Oh, it will be crime. No, there will be a murder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're getting to the end of, say, one of the Shetland books, do you, at that point, do you know where the next book will go? Or do you rest them for a while, pop them down, they do their own thing, and then you come back to them? Yeah, I, I alternate books. I think I, I quite like finishing one series mm -hmm. and then thinking, that's good, I'll go back and have a, have a bit of time with see Vera. See what up to. <laughs> yeah, I'll see what Jim is up to. Though the book that comes out in September is the very last Shetland book, so... That will be wildfire. And then no, hear that? Oh my goodness me! But that, that sounds a bit like me retiring, though, Anne. You may, That's never going to happen. You may go back. Yeah. No, yeah. no. I think I think there are twenty-three thousand people in Shetland. Uh, <laughs> this will be the eighth book. I think I've said pretty much all that I I want to say. About Never mind I, that twenty-two and a half thousand of them are dead. <laughs> I can't keep killing them off. In terms of um, 
your career, James, um, and Anne obviously will have noticed this, and I guess in the time that she's been um, using you as a, as a consultant, how big have the jumps in forensics been? So you've been doing for over a quarter of a century. It sounds Actually, that sounds a long time, doesn't it? So it's in years, so 25 years or so. Um, what, what have the, the jumps been like? You know, you don't notice them because they creep up on you. You just work with them and, and, and get on. And, but when I did retire three years ago, supposedly, uh, lots of people <laughs> asked me what were the singular changes over the period of my career. The one that I, that I highlight is simply DNA. Uh, other things haven't changed so much. The human body's the same. We still do our examinations pretty much the same way that it was always done. But DNA is the single major change. And why does it change things? Well, remember DNA was actually discovered uh, and uh, Nobel Prize winning in 1953. Uh, that's when DNA came to the fore. As usual, it took about 30 years before anybody thought about applying that science to forensic activities and to criminology. So in the 1980s, um, Alec Jeffries from Leicester applied DNA technology as it had been going for 30 years to the identification of the perpetrator of a rape and murder. Uh, and that opened the whole thing up. I worked in the United States for a couple of years, and at that time I had to be part of an entertainment uh, when uh, ICI Cellmark, who had developed the technology for DNA, would take that over to the States and try and sell it to law enforcement. Law enforcement in the United States really was quite disinterested in DNA for criminology. They saw that it might have a purpose in paternity testing, presumably <laughs> that, that was, that was a, a good area. But of course, now when I go to America, DNA is everywhere, and everybody's talking about DNA. It has been a remarkably valuable uh, and accurate tool. Having said which, none of the other tools have become obsolete because of DNA, and we shouldn't forget the fingerprints and the question documents and all these other techniques that have also evolved over a century or more. So they're all equally valid, but the DNA is there. But what DNA has meant, for example, is the way we manage the crime scene. So I think when you described me as a small man, I had just stripped off the crime suit. So you see the people in... He's drunk. <laughs> you see the people in, in exactly, in uh, witless silence. You see them with their white suits on. Uh, what, what, of course, is wrong is they're supposed to have the hoods up and the mask over the uh, well-paid face. Uh, you know, and two sets of gloves and boots and so on. You don't just have sworn in there. And that suit, of course, is there to protect the locust, to protect the, the scene from us. It's not to protect us from the scene, it's to protect the scene from us so that we don't leave our DNA. So sensitive has DNA become. So in the last 10, 15, 20 years, then we've had to develop how we manage a crime scene. And for those of you who come from the northeast of Scotland, who probably, the majority of them, actually uh, crime scene management was way ahead and started for Scotland here in Aberdeen. Uh, they embraced that and got right at it long before they were willing to embrace it elsewhere. Yeah. So we've been doing it for a long time here. And that was a big, big change. 
But I can't speak about DNA without speaking about another matter which is very dear to me. Of course, people see the forensic pathologist in terms of murder investigation, but actually we investigate all sudden uh, and unexpected deaths, about 500 of them a year here, and not 10% uh, of these are going to be homicide investigations, mm. I wouldn't say. But the, what we have learned, for example, is that there are cardiac conditions which are inherited, so sudden death from heart disease in young people. When I was a student, these were just tragic events which had no explanation. But now we know a whole series of conditions which are genetically determined. And we can now use DNA as a diagnostic tool to determine in these usually young people who die suddenly and unexpectedly, you know, when they're running or whatever it might be on the football field, we can use DNA to actually determine the cause of that death. And in doing that, we can then allow the genetics uh, people to investigate the whole family mm. and to identify other potential victims. So yeah. DNA is the thing mm. uh, in uh, criminal investigation, in the way that it has developed and determined how we investigate the crime at the locus and how we retrieve materials for investigation, but always also in this clinical diagnostic activity. It's a literary festival that's set in Aberdeen um, and we have just been crying out for that kind of thing to come back to Aberdeen. I'm Sarah Paretsky. My name is Ben Narodovich. Um, my most recent book... I'm Denise Miner. I'm a crime writer and my latest book is called My name Conviction. is Stuart McBride. My latest book is All That's Dead. Well, crime has always been a popular genre. It's not like it's become a... 0.1% of the 0.1%. The violence, I think, is often a metaphor for something else. It's a metaphor for social rupture. Taking what we're doing now, twisting it through negativities and seeing what the You know, historically, noir fiction tended to focus on sex and the femme fatale. Storytelling. Storytelling has been a key part of society since society Granite started. Granite noir is a, a place for people who take their murders seriously. So this is our fourth Granite Noir and it's the biggest and most ambitious yet. We have 59 authors from nine different countries in eight venues across the city and we've got audiences coming from as far afield as Arizona, Kentucky, and Madrid, Brussels and from Orkney to Oxford. Granite Noir seems to really have captured the imagination of the city and it's making a name for itself as one of Scotland's signature book festivals that there has never been a better time for crime fiction, or in, indeed a time when crime fiction is more needed than now. It's just really important um, for Granite Noir to be rooted locally in the city. Well, I mean, I think festivals like Granite Noir are brilliant for bringing in new audiences. You see far younger people at, at festivals than you do at normal book events. I think it's, uh, I think in this particular case, I think it draws the, crime gravity away from Edinburgh and Glasgow and, and up further north. Expands how you're thinking about, uh, about the books themselves, both as a reader and as a writer. Granite Noir is inspired by our fascination with crime writing, 
We are reading about it, we're watching it on TV, we're listening to podcasts, and our homegrown Scottish authors are leading the way. Authors like Ian Rankin, Denise Miner, Chris Brookmeyer, Val McDermott, Stuart McBride. I mean, I think what crime fiction does that's really unique is it takes quite often a fairly staid audience to a point of social rupture. And in a lot of ways, that's what crime fiction does. It, it, crime fiction talks about the kind of monsters that we as a society are scared of. The things that worry and scare us as a society, crime fiction is ideally placed to explore and examine. You, a place where you feel very vulnerable, very exposed, very at risk. And crime fiction tends to exploit those feelings of, of vulnerability and then to help you try to find a place where you can knit it back together. So this weekend I've learned so much about crime fiction and writing and why people are so fascinated in it. And it's the psychology behind the realisation that everybody has the capability to be good or bad inside them. So everyone has a Jekyll and a Hyde. Well, if it, 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 these things wouldn't happen without arts organisations um, organising them. They just wouldn't. It is so, so, so vital that that these organisations and the councils that support them actually do consider that the cultural life of the city is as important as everything else. And that's exactly what the support from Aberdeen Performing Arts in getting this festival up and keeping it up does. You know, it, this nourishes the soul of the people.